1: Hi, everybody. This is Dan here. We make an announcement about this at the end of the episode. But as you are all aware, the year 2021 is coming to an end. And Andrew and I have begun the process of recording our In Memoriam episodes to commemorate some of the sports lives that were lost in the year 2021. We'd love to have anybody who's interested join us to discuss anybody who was meaningful to you this year that passed away. So if that's something you're interested in, feel free to drop us a line at Sports at gmail.com or drop us a note on Facebook on our Facebook page, Hello World Sports Podcast. We'd love to have some of you join us to talk about the many lives that were lost in 2021.
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Hello,
1: old sports welcome to the hello old sports podcast on the sports history network i'm dan newman and i'm joined as always by my brother and co-host andrew newman andrew how are you doing tonight
2: it's going pretty well dan um it was we're recording on a day in november where it was 70 degrees here in new york or darn near 70 degrees uh, earlier today so um Certainly unseasonably warm for a week from Thanksgiving, starting to rain now and the temperature's dropping. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We did the first half of this episode a couple of weeks back. We recorded it on the year 1986 and we kind of went chronologically and left off right before we get to baseball and football. And certainly there's quite a bit there in each of those. So looking forward to getting back into it.
1: Yeah, so this will be, in some ways, at least a very New York focused episode because two of not only two championship teams, but two of sort of the most talked about historically teams in New York sports history. And that's the 86 Giants. And of course, the 86 Mets uh, dominated their respective sports in this year. Last time around, we talked about basketball, we talked about hockey, we talked about college basketball, and you know, whether it was golf with Nicholas or boxing with Tyson. So, I think the focus is going to be today mostly just on baseball and football. And I mean, maybe we should probably touch a little bit on college football as well. But, you know, probably good to just start with what was really kind of an epic baseball season in 1986 with three historically epic playoff series in the 1986 playoffs.
2: And that was all of them. Uh, we're still yeah. in the era here of um, just the American league championship series, the national league championship series. This had to have been pretty soon after they went to seven games on those series. Right. You know, I think so. I think the, the LCS, let me look that up real quick. I think
1: it was like early eighties. So, let me just kind of pick a random year here. Let me look at say like the 1983.
2: I'm pretty so, sure 84 with the Cubs and Padres. That feels like that was a five-game series.
1: 84 it was still five, yeah, 84 it was still a five-game series in 84. So 85, the 7 was the first year it was 7, yeah, cuz that was the year that was the seven-game series Royals and Blue Jays in the AL and then it was six games Cards and Dodgers in the NL. So, yeah, this is only the second time second season that they've gone to the seven game league championship series and it's crazy now to think about all these extra rounds only about 30 years later that they're thinking about adding wasn't that long ago it was in my lifetime that the lcs was still just five games
2: yeah yeah and this would have been year number two of that and they were rewarded with three very memorable series one of which um sadly carries a bit of a morbid twist that i'm sure we'll get to at some point but you know in the early i think it's important to talk about the 80 the baseball in the early 80s is sort of a an era that at the time there was not really much comparison to maybe now if we put our heads together i could find up i could find a couple of you know 5 6 year period where it was the case but you know you basically had different teams in the world series every year you go back as far as 80 and it still feels like the 70s where you had the the phillies and the the royals and then 81 was the Dodgers and the Yankees 82 the Cardinals and the Brewers 83 was the Phillies and the uh, Orioles 84 the Tigers and the Padres and then 85 Kansas City and St. Louis so you know from like 81 to 85 it was a lot of different teams and the few teams that were there more than once didn't win more than once
1: so why don't we start off and talk about the Mets Mm -hmm. the Mets had been Obviously, they'd been bad for the first several years of their existence in the 60s. They had that miracle year in 69. They made it to the World Series again in 73. And then they were they were bad for most of the 70s and into the 80s. And then things kind of start to change in 83 and 84. 83 is Daryl Strawberry's rookie year. And he is 21 years old. He comes up, he wins Rookie of the Year. Everybody's comparing him to a young Ted Williams, the sort of tall, lanky, left-handed power hitter. So he comes on in 83. In I'm sorry, in 80, 80, 83. Yeah, 83. plays 122 games, 26 home runs, bats 257, wins a Rookie of the Year. And then in 84 is when things really kind of start to shift and that's when they bring in Davey Johnson to be the new manager. Doc Gooden joins the team. He's 19 years of age. He goes 17 and nine with a 2.6 ERA. The following year in 85, they trade for Gary Carter, who is uh, had been the catcher with Montreal, been a multi-time all star, is on the way to a Hall of Fame career, I believe what year do they bring in Keith Hernandez? Is that also 85, or was he there starting in 80?
2: Hernandez came to the Mets in 83.
1: He was traded from the Cardinals, where he had been a league MVP. He actually shared the MVP, I believe, in uh, 79 with Dave Parker. I can uh, verify that and maybe correct myself after the fact if I'm wrong about that.
2: With really, Stargell.
1: With Stargell in 79. Okay, not Dave Parker. Mm-hmm. And he is traded from the Cardinals to the Mets for Neil Allen and Rick Onby in the middle of the 1983 season. Didn't want to leave St. Louis, you know, was really enjoying St. Louis, but he ends up with the Mets. He, he adjusts. He becomes a team leader. One of the greatest defensive first basemen of all time, Keith Hernandez. They win 90 games in 1984. They win. How many do they win in 85? I believe they're into the mid 90s. 98. 98 games in 85. They finished second in the NL East to the St. Louis Cardinals and baseball divisions were screwing in those days, you know, but 98 win team not making the world series. And it's funny, a couple of weeks ago when I interviewed Bobby Valentine about his book, he was actually a coach on these uh, 85, 86 Met teams before he got the Texas Ranger job. And I asked him, I said, could you just tell that this was a team that was on the cusp of real greatness? And he said he could. And so 1986 rolls along and they have this single dominant year As one of the greatest teams in baseball history, one of the greatest teams, one of the most exciting teams, and one of the uh, most polarizing teams in the history of Major League Baseball.
2: Yeah, they win 108 games, so they improved 10 games from their uh, record the year before. I think it's still one of the highest win totals for a National League team ever. You know, some of those really crooked number teams you think about were American League teams. Not all of them, but
1: Seattle and the ninety-eight Yankees.
2: The team the fifty-four Indians before that, the twenty-seven Yankees. It's they're one of the highest win national league, highest total national league win teams ever. And you know, we we'll get to this towards the end, but they had some older guys, but there really wasn't any reason to think, oh, this is definitely a one year team. But yeah, you mentioned Carter, Hernandez, obviously in the outfield, you had Darryl Strawberry in right field, Dykstra in center. The infield wasn't you know, big, and some of these names are famous names now, specifically I'm talking about Ray Knight, but it was also the pitching. Uh, Gooden wasn't, he was definitely a step back from where he'd been the year before in 85, but he still wins 17 games and pitches to a sub three ERA Ron Darling, right below him, with 15 wins, also a sub-3 ERA. But their best pitcher that year is Bob Ojeda, who goes 18-5 and five with a 2.57. They have four different pitchers who win 15 games or more when you throw in Sid Fernandez. And then in the bullpen, Roger McDowell, Jesse Orozco at 29 years old, and you know still constitutes early in his career, given how much longer he pitched, even though he was almost 30. So this is a team that's loaded... In a lot of ways, you know, except I guess some of the middle infield, if you were going to like improve on it at all, you'd probably say some of the the hitting up the middle is not what you'd expect these days. But that's basically nitpicking.
1: Yeah. And they are also a team with a lot of off the field antics. They have a couple of players, Jesse Roscoe, Danny Heap and Doug Sisk, who are, you know, other than, you know, not not everyday players. Orozco is a pitcher and the others. The others are not not everyday players but they they call themselves the scum bunch they would hold drinkathons and uh pukeathons on the team bus there's a famous incident early in the year in Houston where the Mets get into and I'm just looking up this real quick there's a fight at a bar in Houston when the Mets are visiting Houston uh yeah July of 1986, uh, four MET players are arrested after a fight in Houston. Uh, Bob Ojeda, Rick Aguilera, Tim Tuffle, and Ron Darling uh, include and were charged with um, two of them are charged with aggravated assault on a police officer, which is a third degree felony. So these are guys who get themselves in a lot of trouble throughout the season. But they're the toast of New York.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there's in addition to sort of the brawling and the antics, there might have been some sort of tangential knowledge of it at the time. But obviously, there were some serious drug problems with guys like Gooden and Strawberry later on. And I don't know what you want to characterize Lenny Dykstra's post-baseball career as bizarre. Bizarre. Yes, fits into many, many categories. But, you know, there was lots of books. The famous book about the 86 Mets is called The Bad Guys Won. And then it's got a subtitle that's like 7000 words long. I'll read it real quick
1: because I use it as a lot of research for this book. It's by Jeff Perlman, who's written a lot of really good sports books. In fact, one of his other really good books was about the Showtime Lakers. And I use it for the first half of this episode. It says it's called The Bad Guys Won. A season of brawling, boozing, bimbo chasing and championship baseball with straw, doc, Mookie, nails, the kid and the rest of the 1986 Mets, the rowdiest team ever to put on a New York uniform and maybe the best.
2: Yeah, the last part is nonsense. But other than that, <laughs> the New York Yankees would have something to say about that. But um, yeah, no, they were a force of nature in a lot of ways in a lot of good ways and in a lot of bad ways. And, you know, I think it also, and we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about football, but you also have to sort of put them into the context of New York City at the time. The New York City of 1996 is so different than the New York City of 1986. You know, you're still in an era that probably gets romanticized too much these days, but New York was still very gritty and dirty and that was not the New York City of the M&M store. So this team, I don't want to say embodied it, but certainly was a part was part and parcel of the landscape of sort of the cultural fabric that made up New York City in the 70s and 80s.
1: The other thing is they fought. They (laughs) fought not just off the field in bars, but they fought on the field. They had a crazy brawl in July in Cincinnati when Eric Davis stole steals third and then gets into a fight with Ray Knight at third base. This is a team that fought, you know, on the field, off the field with each other. There's a story about, I think it was Keith Hernandez punched Daryl strawberry the day of a team picture. So, they really just they were, like you said, they fit this sort of brawling New York City mentality of the 1980s, kind of the gritty in your face attitude of the times.
2: Yeah, I'm seeing this article here. It says when they came to blow oh, this Never mind. this, that was a different year. I, I-, well, a- I googled Daryl Strawberry Keith Hernandez fight. And the first thing that came up was an article, but it turned out that one was about a- three years later. So. <laughs> Um, in 1989. But um, yeah, there was, uh, you know, these are the kind of things that, if a couple of things happen differently that we'll talk about, these are examples of why those Mets teams were a wasted opportunity. And that kind of still is true, but now it gets the tinge of sorts. It's like, it's very much like the Bronx Zoo Yankees, where it's like, oh, yeah, it was a circus, but they won. So, The narrative shifts a little from thinking about how much better they might have been if some of this stuff hadn't been going on.
1: So like a lot of good teams, especially in this era, when there was no wild card to speak of, there's no drama. There's no on-field, in-season drama. They win the National League East by 21 and a half games, the closest team, only one other team in the National League. East has a winning record and that's the Phillies and they're 86 and 75. So this is a team that does not have to worry about making the playoffs probably anytime after about May or June. So it's a coronation. They make very few moves in season. The one move that they do make is they trade away George Foster, who is their starting left fielder and had been, before he came to the Mets, he was a big part of the big red machine teams, but he had kind of grown disillusioned with the fans, with the team, with a lot of his teammates. So they trade him and they bring back, they bring in Lee Mazzilli, who had been a hero with the Mets in the late 70s and early 80s. They bring him back for the stretch championship run. Like you said, just a really good team, top to bottom. It's funny, other than Carter... And obviously, Strawberry, who's having a world, or having a, you know, he's on track at this point for a Hall of Fame career. And I guess Hernandez, who a lot of people think are is a potential Hall of Famer. It's not like you look at this team and see a lot of guys. I mean, there's a lot of guys on here, on here, on this lineup who probably never even made an All Star team. You know, Wally Backman and Rafael Santana and Ray Knight. It's a great team, but it's not a team that's you know chock full of legends. It's not the big red machine. It's not the 60s and 70s Orioles where you just look and you got really solid all-star Hall of Famers at four or five positions.
2: But almost everybody there was either in their prime, just past their prime, Turns out that was their prime. In the case of a couple of guys who you thought were still on their way up, but like before, I realized I misspoke. I was talking about you know maybe the middle of the infield. Wally uh, Wally Backman had his probably his best offensive year that year. I think he was like third in the team in hits and stuff like that. They moved into a tie for first on April twenty second, which would have been the day they played their eleventh game. And by July first, they were up ten games, and it was never less than that afterwards. And they spent a lot of time up, you know, above 20 games and ultimately won the division by 21 and a half.
1: So they go into the NLCS and their opponents in the NLCS are the Houston Astros who are 96 and 66. They win the NL West. They are managed by Hal Lanier. Who's not a name that you hear about often. And they're another one of these teams that doesn't have a lot of names. You know, Alan Ashby and Dickie Thon and Billy Hatcher. It is a team that's been kind of lost to history. The strength of the team is really the pitching staff led by a 39-year-old Nolan Ryan who would come over from the California Angels in 1980 And then a 31-year-old by the name of Mike Scott, who has a career year in 1986, leads the league in ERA with a 2.22 ERA, 18-10 and record, and wins the Cy Young Award at the age of 31. And the big thing about Mike Scott is that He is widely believed to be doctoring the ball, whether it's rubbing something on it or scratching it with sandpaper. And he comes into this 86 LCS as the Mets are viewing him as almost unhittable.
2: So before we get into the, because I know we're on the NL, before we get into the playoffs in the NLCS, I do have one more important piece of information about something that happened in baseball in the NL in the 1986 season, I have an article here from June 6th of 1986. It says San Diego, San Diego Padres manager, Steve Boros, I'm guessing B-O-R-O-S. Okay. was ejected before Friday night's game against the Atlanta Braves for bringing to the plate during the exchange of lineups, a videotape of a controversial triple play. (laughs) While presenting his lineup card at home plate, Boros also bought a tape of Thursday night's triple play in which umpire Charlie Williams called Bip Roberts out at home plate to complete the play. Williams promptly ejected Boros for displaying the tape. (laughs) So he went to show them that they'd blown a call the night before with the aid of a videotape and he was thrown out before the game began. (laughs) Um, So I just figured I would uh, point out that that was uh, another unusual happening that a guy was ejected for bringing a prop out to the lineup exchange.
1: Jeez, that's crazy.
2: <laughs> so the Mets go
1: in to the 86 ALC NLCS against uh, Mike Scott and the Astros. And I think it's important to note here. Doc Gooden had not had as good of a year in 86 as he as he did in 85. Now his 85 season was, Almost historical at 20 years old, he wins 24 games, loses only four, 1.5 ERA, complete game, 16 complete games. He gets what's sort of known as the pitching triple crown that year, wins ERA and strikeouts, one of the great pitching seasons in baseball history. So you could only expect him to fall a little bit in later years, but. It's crazy. 86 is kind of the last really, really good year that Gooden has. You know, he does okay, but this is his first year. This is last year, I should say, with over 10 wins and a sub three ERA. He goes 17 and six, 2.84 ERA. He's still 200 strikeouts. He's still the leader of this Mets staff. And obviously, later on, you would see we would learn that a lot of this was about the drug use that he was taking part in. But he's still the Mets ace, and he goes in, he loses a pitcher's duel against Scott in game one at the Astrodome. And I guess, I I guess in those days, I don't have this in front of me, but they must have just alternated home in a way because obviously the Mets should have had home field advantage in this series if we were going just by. Record,
2: yeah. I think they, um, I think it just went sort of like how the World Series did. I think, mm-hmm. I think that's how the AL and NLCS's went until they reformatted in the mid 90s. I'm pretty sure, yeah. It, in this game, one, I guess it's no surprise that Michael Scott outranks Dwight, but <laughs> yeah, they, it's a one nothing game. You know, the, that's the final, it's a home run in the bottom of the second. Scott continues his. Cy Young performance, fourteen strikeouts, complete game shutout. Gooden, Gooden was good too. He just let up a one one solo home run. He pitched seven innings himself, but the Astros get a you know a dominant per- pitching performance to open the series with a one nothing lead.
1: So the teams go back and forth. The Mets come back and win in Game Two. They win five to one, and then. They win a close one in game three, six to five. And so the teams go back and then they lose game four, two to two going into game five. And then game five is a 12 inning Mets two to one win. The Mets win in the bottom of the 12th on a single by Gary Carter off of Charlie Kerfield to win the game. There had not been any runs in this game scored since the, Looks like the the top of the fifth. Yeah, there were no runs scored from the top of the fifth all the way to the bottom of the 12th. And the, so, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Bottom of the fifth. The Mets scored in the bottom of the fifth.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. From the bottom. Yeah, Strawberry hits a home run in the bottom of the fifth to tie the game at one to one. And then the Mets go back to Houston to the Astronome the next day. Actually, they had the no, no off day. It's right from October 14th to October 15th.
2: It been rain between. I, I see here, game five rain was postponed. Uh, game was supposed to be Monday. It was rain, so it was postponed till Tuesday. That fourteen inning game, actually, twelve inning game rather, actually started at noon because it was a makeup from the day before. So that twelve inning game was a you know was supposed to have been Monday.
1: And so they go into Houston. It's Ohita against Bob Nepper, and it's a just an epic. 16-inning game that the Mets, they are channeling 3-0 going into the top of the ninth. So they're down to their last outs in this game. And Dykstra hits a triple. Wilson singles. Kevin Mitchell grounds out, but then Keith Hernandez doubles. Couple walks. Then Ray Knight hits a sack fly. And all of a sudden, it's 3-3. to And then the two teams stalemate into the 14th inning when Backman hits an RBI single. But then in the bottom of the 14th, Billy Hatcher hits a home run off of Jesse Orozco. So they stay tied until the 16th. And then this is the crazy thing. The Mets score three runs in the top of the 16th and the Astros after leading off with a strikeout, they then get on base for the next three batters, score a run, ground out, then score another run until Jesse Roscoe still in the game after giving up uh, the lead in the fourteenth inning, still in the game in the sixteenth. I guess at a certain point, you, you figured you're kind of just out of pitchers, so what are you going to do? And so the Mets win this epic. Epic game six in the 16th inning. And what's most important to realize here is that even though the Mets were up three to two, they really wanted to win this game because they'd been able to do very little against Mike Scott. And they were looking at facing him again in the, Game In Game 7. So you have to believe at the Astrodome, the Mets would very much have been the favorite going in to a Game 7 with Mike Scott on the mound, Cy Young winner, having already won the previous two games. So with Mike Scott coming up as a starting pitcher for Game 7, in a lot of ways, Game 6 was kind of a must win for the Mets and they do in an epic fashion, 16 innings. So this is just, this is a devastating loss. Bob Nepper, who had lost, who had been the the starting pitcher said that um, he, he had pitched eight excellent innings and then he let it get away in the ninth. And he said, I never wanted to win a ball game so bad in, our, in my life. And he closed his eyes and said, this is going to be a long winter. So you wouldn't think After this NLCS that the Mets could possibly have another playoff series that was quite as exciting. But as we'll see when we get to game six, it was um, even more so for the World Series. But I think first we should probably talk a little bit about the other 86 playoff series. We should talk about the Red Sox and the Angels, which was an even more epic series because it went seven games.
2: Yeah, and if you think about the nineteen eighty six uh, Red Sox, well, I mean, if you think about the nineteen eighty six Red Sox, now everybody thinks about the exact same thing. But if you go back, um, this was the year that Clemens had that twenty strikeout game, and that was what late April that he had the twenty strikeouts. Yep, against Seattle. Yep. Yeah, at at Fenway, Clemens was Clemens is twenty three years old. He goes twenty four and four with a two point four eight ERA. He starts thirty three times, so he's fully healthy. This it always cracks me up that this 80s he was gone by the time the playoffs started, but that the 86 Red Sox had sixty got sixteen starts out of Tom Seaver at 41 years old. That I've just always thought, you know, especially given who they play in the World Series, how interesting that is.
1: There's a new there was a new book um by Bill Madden about Tom Seaver, a new biography that came out a couple of years ago. And he had said apparently he had wanted to go to the Mets and the Mets for whatever reason in 86, weren't interested in bringing him back. A lot of people don't realize that the Mets actually did bring Seaver back for a season in 1983. And then they had put him on some list where he was eligible to be claimed. And they didn't think anybody would take him because he was old and he had a huge contract, but somebody did. And so he ended up with the white Sox for a few years. And then when the white Sox cut him, in 86, he really, really wanted to sign with the Mets. For, but for whatever reason, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, the Mets did not have any interest in bringing him in. So he ends up with the Red Sox. He's hurt. He, he he gets injured at some point during the late later part of the 86 season. But he's there. He's on the bench as the Red Sox go through the ALCS and then into the World Series.
2: And the Red Sox run away with the division. If you look, they only end up winning the division by five and a half games. But... They were up, you know, nine or ten, and then they kind of lost a bunch of games after everything was clinched to make it look a lot. That's what it was. They only ended up, they only beat out the Yankees by five and a half games, but the Yankees literally beat them the last four games of the season to close that gap from nine and a half to five and a half. So, it you know, it, it looks like it was a little closer than it was. You know, we talked about with the Red Sox, obviously. You think of Clemens, some of the other starters, Oil Can Boyd was a uh, name that will probably come up in a little while, but 16 and 10 for him, 3.78 ERA. They get 13 wins out of Bruce Hurst. Mentioned Seaver getting a few starts in the first half of the year. And then at the plate, this is a team. You still got Jim Rice there uh, in left field. Don Baylor, Dwight Evans, Wade Boggs at third base at 28 years old. It's 357. Would this have been the best year of his career? Boggs? Yeah. What year did he win MVP? Didn't he win
1: MVP later on in the 80s? He was, um, oh no, he didn't win MVP.
2: 86, he finished. Seventh in the MVP. The year before he finished fourth. So maybe, maybe the year before was a little bit better for him he has higher batting average years. He hits up in three... the three average he's had of like a four year period. It's the only year he didn't hit over three sixty. You know, it's
1: funny because you just, you think of Boggs in retrospect and if we remember him from the Yankees when he was obviously on the downside of his career. But even when I first sort of became aware of baseball in the later 80s, early nineties, you always thought of him as a good player, but sort of, you know, slow and lumbering. And he, he was that don't get me wrong, but, You talk about a guy starting with his rookie year, 349, 361, 325, 368, 357, 363, 366. This guy was one of the best just hitters of all time in the 1980s. It's crazy.
2: The only thing that strikes me looking at this lineup is just how old this team was in a lot of ways. I mean, they all played for the most part. They were all healthy, but Bill Buckner was 36 and he played in 153 games. Jim Rice was 33. He played in 157. Tony Armas was 32 and 121. Dwight Evans, 34. Don Baylor was 37. So the pitching staff, you know, obviously led by a 23 year old and outside of Seaver, nobody was over 30. Seaver was over 40, but the lineup, the everyday lineup, there were some guys, you know, on the plus side of 30 there that made up a lot of their offense
1: and you mentioned Dom Baylor. He's in the midst of a very interesting three year stretch. He's actually at the beginning of it, despite being 37 years. He's on the Red Sox. Then in 87, halfway through the season, the Red Sox traded in Minnesota, where he goes and plays in the World Series with Minnesota. And then the following year, in the last year of his career, he signs with the A's in 88 and goes and plays in the World Series with 88. So a guy who the last three years of his career plays in the World Series with three different teams, all in the American League. I, I don't obviously have everything committed to memory but that's probably the only time that's ever happened in baseball history
2: i think but i there might have been a guy who was with like the rays and then the i don't know we'd have to look but i feel like it may there's been a guy who was on like a bunch of different teams that were at least in the alcs like in the last 10 or 15 years but we're not going to figure that out this quickly
1: so like the mets they have an epic world series i'm sorry an epic league championship series, but theirs is even crazier. They lose three of the four first four games. And then they're in Anaheim for game five to play the California angels. And just to give you a little bit of a flavor of this angel team, they're managed by Gene Mock, who was a long time major league manager. People sometimes say he is the best manager never to make it to a world series. Gene Mock's previous claim to fame was that he had been the manager of the Phillies in 1964 when they had that epic collapse where they blew the pennant in September with something like whatever it was, 12 or 13 losses in a row, Blew it to the Cardinals. A couple decades later, he's still managing, still trying to get to that first World Series. And he's leading this Angel team, which, among other players, has uh, Bob Boone, uh, Aaron Boone's father at Catcher. It has a 40 year old Reggie Jackson as the designated hitter. And they go into their their lead pitcher is a guy by the name of Mike Witt, who uh, I think the only thing I know him from is he threw a perfect game once in his career. Another old guy they have is the 41-year-old future Hall of Famer Don Sutton is one of their starting pitchers, Who Sutton, who'd had most of his career with the Dodgers. And so he gets a start in this ALCS at the age of 41. So between Sutton and Reggie Jackson, a couple of Hall of Famers who had Seen the seen the wrong side of forty, and we're just trying to hold on for one last uh, one last one last championship run, and it's looking pretty good as they go into game five of the ALCS. They have their closer Donnie Moore on the mound in the ninth inning. The the uh, Angels go in with Mike Witt, the starting pitcher. And he gives up a two-run home run to Don Baylor, who we mentioned a a few minutes ago. Baylor hits a home run. He scores Bill Buckner. Witt then gets another out. They bring in Gary Lucas to pitch to Rich Gedman. Lucas then hits Gedman with a pitch. And then Donnie Moore comes in to try and save the game. And he gives up a two-run home run to Dave Henderson, Another guy who later ends up uh, winning a World Series with the Oakland Athletics, Dave Henderson, who'd been traded mid-season from the Seattle Mariners, and he gives up a home run. The Red Sox take the lead. They go up 6-5. to Now, even if you're familiar with this story, you may actually not realize that the Angels actually score a run in the bottom of the ninth to send the game to extra innings. Donnie Moore actually stays in the game. This is really funny to think about what's well, not funny when you realize what happened in retrospect, but gets through the 10th. Angels don't score in the 10th. And then in the 11th inning with two runners on. Dave Henderson comes up again to face Donnie Moore, hits a sack fly, he scores Don Baylor. And that ends up being the winning run. They Calvin Giraldi shuts the Angels down in the bottom of the inning. And then the Red Sox win. They make it 3-2. to two. They go back to Boston and they beat the Angels in two relative blowouts, 10-4 in Game 6, and then a laugher 8-1 to one in Game 7 on that same October 15th where the Mets beat the angels and head to their first world series in 11 years. But I think you have to kind of pause for a minute and talk about the, the very sad story of Donnie Moore.
2: Yeah. And we should also point in that game five, the angels got the run to tie it in the bottom of the night. They also had the bases loaded with one out and they could have scored on a sacrifice fly and won the pennant. Donnie Moore. This was towards the later part of his career. He'd been in the majors since 1975, Cubs, Cardinals, Brewers, Braves. So obviously this happens. He was quoted after game five saying, I was throwing fastballs and Henderson was fouling them off. So I went with the split finger, thought maybe I'd catch him off guard, but was right in his swing. Saved just nine more games. The next two years was released by the angels played in the Royals minor league system in 1989 released uh, in June of that year. His career was over and a couple of, Weeks after being released by the Royals organization on July 18th, 1989, Moore had an argument with his wife, Tanya, shot her three times with a forty five caliber pistol at their Anaheim Hills home. Tanya and her and the daughter escaped and back inside the house, still in the presence of at least one of his sons, Moore then put the gun to his head and committed suicide at 35 years old. So Obviously, there's a lot of reasons for something like that. And even if you were going to say baseball had something to do with it, probably more the end of his baseball career, which just happened a few weeks before that. You know, it's not like this happened two weeks after the Dave Henderson home run, but there are people, I guess, that have been quoted in the intervening years saying that they didn't think he had ever really gotten over that.
1: Yeah, they make it sound like that. He was booed, obviously, which you you would have to anticipate when a guy blows a game that would have sent his team to the world series. It's just sort of the nature of sports. And it really does seem like he never really got over it. And so it is, it's a very, very, very sad story, but that's kind of that home run off of Hender that Henderson hits off him is widely considered one of the great moments in baseball history with good reason, but it can be hard to think about it without recognizing the the tragic story of, of Donnie Moore that goes along with it.
2: And it's also important, almost, and you hate to reduce a, a guy's death to, I don't mean it this way, but that is also an interesting chapter to what we're going to talk about in a minute, which is, you know, sort of if you want to have the larger discussion about the people behind these infamous sports moments on the losing end, whether they're gaffes. And I mean, Donnie Moore just threw a pitch that got hit for a home run. He didn't, it wasn't a, like a an error or anything like that, but you know, just that sometimes these things, even if they're not as tragic as the Donnie Moore situation have real consequences for real people when they'll live their rest of the rest of their lives, being reminded of a professional failure. Absolutely. All right,
1: so let's talk about this World Series, but why don't we first talk a little bit? Um, I want to tell the story uh, from Jeff Perlman's The Bad Guys One book. The Mets did $7,500 worth of damage to their plane, their team plane on the way back from their win in Houston. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this. It all starts with cake. Jane Heap chucks a piece of celebratory Cake at her husband, Danny Heap, the Mets player, suddenly pieces of cake were everywhere, on the back of seats, in front of on the front of suits, in hair, covering eyes, brown icing was all over the carpet, brown icing on the ceiling. Soon it was a free for all. Bottles of champagne rolled down the aisle. Peas were smushed up and used as shampoo. More and more alcohol made its way from United refrigerators to passengers' throats. When the beer ran out, the airline distributed small bottles of hard liquor. To a man, the players insist that this was where the real trouble began. The wives were able to handle champagne and beer, but not the strong stuff, especially combined with the altitude and the food. No one is sure who was the first throw up. One thing is certain, at least three wives did, and none seemed to feel that the toilet or a barf bag would serve them any better than the seat pocket. Meanwhile, a couple of players decided to see if with some jiggling, the seats could unfold into a couch. Strawberry, for one, pushed and pushed until crack, the seat folded down. In his autobiography, Dwight Gooden recalls that the most vivid image of the flight, at one point the partying was so out of control, the lavatory door accidentally flew open, and there was one of my teammates, his face in front of lines of cocaine, I wasn't shocked that he was using. I was just shocked that he was so high he didn't even realize the door was open. Upon landing, two or three of the wives had to be carried across the jet, carried off the jet. Half the team exited wearing T-shirts and ties. Doug Sisk wore one shoe. The plane was even grosser. A few days after the flight, the Mets general manager, Frank Cashin, received a bill from United from $7,500, along with a note saying that the Mets' business was no longer welcome. So they go into the 1986 World Series, and this is this is a, a World Series that's, that's had some ink spilled about it uh, throughout the years, I guess you'd have to say.
2: Yeah, and, and we're going to spend most of our time on that. I feel like we should just talk about the beginning of the series first. So game one, it's at the Mets have home field. Game one at Shea. They lose this just like they lost the NLCS game one, which was one to nothing. Bruce Hurst gets the win for Boston. Darling takes the loss for the Mets. Uh, Darling only one run in the game and it was unearned. So there was no earned runs in game one of the World Series. By the way, it's just Tom Seaver got a standing ovation from Shea Stadium fans during the game one introductions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in game two, The Red Sox blow the Mets out nine to three. Gooden gets the loss in this one. So the Red Sox have now taken games one and two at, oh, and this is Clemens went for the Red Sox, but did not uh, stick around long enough to get the win. So the Red Sox have now won both games at Shea, heading home to games three, four, and five at Fenway Park. And if they can win two of those, that'll conclude the business and they will be, No need for the Mets to, uh, well, I guess the Mets would be flying back to New York anyway when they could really destroy a plane. But uh, (laughs) that's a much quicker flight. Yep. So the Mets lose the first two games at Shea.
1: And that's it's crazy to think about given how it ended, but they are going back to Fenway down three nothing, down two nothing, and they sweep them three games in a row.
2: No, they don't. What?
1: No, you're right. They don't. I'm sorry. They win the next two, and then they, they lose game five, obviously, and then they're going back to New York down 3-2.
2: So We'll do this quick. Game three, Fenway Park, Tuesday, October the 21st, 1986. The Mets score four runs in the top of the first. They win 7-1. to one. Uh, Dykstra actually led off the game with a home run. Danny Heap had a two-run double also in that first inning. Oil Can Boyd was the pitcher for the Red Sox. Ohita got the start for the Mets. They win 7-1. to one. Game four, the next day, the Mets win six to two. They jumped, well, they don't jump out, but they were up six to nothing. And then the Red Sox got a couple of runs later in the game. Ron Darling gets the win over Al Nipper. Gary Carter, two run home run. Ray Knight hit a single. So they go up two to two, even the series. And then game five, Thursday, October the 23rd at Fenway Park with the series tied at two. Suddenly now it's the Red Sox whose backs are seemingly against the wall. And they, they get, A run in the second, a run in the third, two in the fifth, take a four to nothing lead. um, The Mets had one in the eighth and one in the ninth, but that is uh, the end of it. So the Red Sox hold on. They win four to two. Bruce Hurst gave them a seven and a third shutout innings until the Mets got that first run in the eighth. So while they certainly didn't take care of business and the series is going back to Shea, they head back uh, on Friday, travel day, for... Game six of the 1986 World Series, Saturday, October the 25th in Blushing, New York, with the Mets needing to win to keep their season alive, and the Red Sox one game away from ending a 68-year World Series drought.
1: And they got Roger Clemens on the mound. Yes. They've Um, got the pitcher who not only was the Cy Young winner, but had also won the most valuable player award in 1986 Clemens is 86 is in some ways almost it's eerily similar to Gooden's 85 in a lot of ways he actually does not lead the league in strikeouts but despite having 238 of them 24 and 4 first of his two back-to-back Cy Young awards that he'd have in the 80s for the Red Sox and this is a dominant pitcher and He's getting ready to end this, what by this point is what a 68 year drought for the Red Sox in the world series. I don't think it had quite reached the levels that it would years later because Dan Shaughnessy, the Boston sports writer, a couple years later writes a book called the curse of the Bambino. And that's when it really sort of starts to take on a life of its own with this idea that This team is cursed and, you know, they can trace it back to this original sin of having traded Babe Ruth away in 1920, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But even absent that, there's still at this point a team with a rabid fan base that hasn't won in a very long time and that's lost some World Series since then in heartbreaking fashion The Red Sox, since they trade Ruth and they stopped winning in the 19-teens, they'd been to three World Series. They'd lost all three of them in seven games and really lost all three of them in epic fashion, whether it was in 46 with the Enos Slaughter scoring from first base to win the game for the Cardinals in 75. They win an epic extra inning game in game six with the Carlton Fisk home run, and then they lose game seven in 75. So this is a team that is a team in a city that is dying for a world championship for their baseball team. And I remember I've seen, I remember watching the video of game six and they lead in to the game with, you know, interviews with these elderly Red Sox fans who are finally going to see their world championship. And you just, it, even though I'm, you know, I am glad it went the way it did in '86. It's it's just kind of sad to think about these, you know, 75, 80 year old Red Sox fans who were primed to see their f- team finally win a title and they didn't.
2: So the uh, Red Sox jump out to an early lead. They get a run in the first, a run in the second. Uh, Evans and Barrett with hits. It stays that way until the fifth inning. Ray Knight hits a single to get one run in and then Danny Heap grounds into a double play. This thing points out his last at bat as a Met that ties the game. So it's two to two. Sixth inning, Mets have a chance to take the lead. Uh, Backman and Hernandez get base hits. Gary Carter strikes out. Strawberry grounds out. Red Sox take the lead in the seventh on a error by Ray Knight that gets uh, Barrett home. So they go up three to two. Dwight Evans could result in an in and A double play, uh, put hit and run play on. I'm just trying to skip through some of this. So it's three to two. The Red Sox in the top of the eighth. Dave Henderson on second with just one out. McNamara sends a rookie, Mike Greenwell, uh, into pinch hit for Clemens. They don't get that run in. So it stays three to two. You know, there's been a lot of conjecture about whether Roger Clemens in fact did ask out of the game I don't was it McNamara who said Clemens asked out of the game McNamara always swore that Clemens
1: asked out of the game and I think that and and it's worth noting he did have a little bit of a a hand issue he had a torn fingernail on his hand he was bleeding from two of his fingers his index and his middle finger, he always swears that he did not act ask out of the game. And I think for a while, you know, 10, 15 years ago when Clemens was sort of at his most villainous, it was easy to think that Clemens was lying because he lied about a lot of things related to baseball steroids or, you know, even some of the Piazza stuff, maybe so Clemens was not a sympathetic figure. And so I think for a long time, people believed McNamara. Now, one thing that I've sort of known, and maybe this was always out there and I just didn't realize it, a lot of Clemens fellow Red Sox have backed him up on this. Uh, Dave Stapleton, who we'll talk about again in a few minutes, says there's no way Roger wanted out. I've heard a lot of lies about game six and that Roger asked McNamara out as one of them. Marty Barrett says Roger absolutely did not ask out of that game. I was right there and I can swear for a fact that he didn't, but Roger was young and respectful of authority and he didn't say I want to finish either. He left it up to John McNamara. So now I think it's also worth noting. Yeah, they pull Clemens. They put in a reliever he's also thrown 135 pitches at this point. And I think because McNamara presented a good target for some of these issues, it's kind of easy to blame him in retrospect, but I don't think there's any guarantees that Roger Clemens, having just pitched a full season, having pitched 135 games in cold weather in game six of the world series I don't think it's a no brainer to anticipate that he's just going to go out there and shut the Mets down and the, the Red Sox will just cakewalk to the world series. I think that's probably a little bit of an overstatement.
2: Yeah, no, it. I mean, it was regardless of who asked out or whatever it, I mean, the, the other thing too, is you can't conflate them. Chiraldi comes in in the eighth and works into a jam, but gets out of it. So Mazzilli, Comes up as a pinch runner, leads off the inning with a single. Dykstra tries to bunt him over, but ends up just being safe himself. So it's first and second with nobody out. Bachman uh does bunt, so it's second and third with one out. They intentionally walk Hernandez to load the bases. Chiraldi goes 3-0 on Gary Carter, so he's one pitch away from walking in the tying run. Carter swings on 3-0, flies out. Mazzilli scores to tie the game. Okay, so all right. And then with Dykstra now on third, Strawberry stood with a chance to drive in the go-ahead run, fly it out to end the inning. So, Schiraldi lets up the one run. He gets into the jam. It could have been a lot worse. Bases loaded one out. You know, certainly one more hit. Who knows if we're talking about any of this. If Clemens comes out and lets up a runner, he's coming out of the game. Yeah, you know absolutely. I mean? it's, not, it's not like, oh, they would have let him continue. So, that happens in the... Eighth inning, bottom of the ninth, Red Sox don't do anything in the top of the ninth, bottom of the ninth, night walks, Wilson tries to bunt, doesn't get a good one down, they get, so what do they, have? they had a there was a first and second, nobody out in the bottom of the ninth, and again, they can't do anything. Johnson strikes out, and then, Sheraldi then got Mazzilli, who stayed in as the game's defensive replacement, and Strawberry to fly out or excuse me, a Dykstra to fly out. Johnson had come in. Mazzilli had come in for Strawberry. Yeah. And Dykstra flew out as well. So then we go into extra innings.
1: And Strawberry not happy about being pinch hit for, by the way. Yeah,
2: I would imagine not. Well, he if, Mazzilli went in for defense. Yeah,
1: yeah but still, and- I, I've read quotes where he was not pleased.
2: Mm-hmm. So this goes into the 10th. I won't go blow by blow, but the Red Sox take a 5-3 to three lead.
1: Dave Henderson hits a home run off of Rick Aguilera Mm -hmm. and it's sort of is Henderson about to be the hero again? Did he just hit the home run to send the Red Sox to the world series, to the championship after he had hit the home run in game five off Donnie Moore to basically keep them in the series and eventually send them into the world series against Anaheim two weeks earlier.
2: Well, it's now if you want to start second guessing McNamara, you really can. So Anderson hits the home run. Owen strikes out here up comes Calvin Shiroldi and he lets Calvin Shiroldi hit. They have a two run or they have a one run lead. He's got two pitchers warming up in the bullpen. He lets Shiroldi hit Shiroldi strikes out Boggs doubles. Barrett drives him in. So they get the second run and up comes Bill Buckner. He lets uh, Buckner hit Buckner gets hit with a pitch in the hip here, which is also not something to necessarily be glossed over. Yeah, Buckner gets hit
1: cold weather, October.
2: Yep. And then Rice flies out, but we're going to the bottom of the 10th. The Red Sox have a two run lead. They are. Three outs away from winning their first World Series in 68 years. If you've you've seen the Ken Burns baseball, the original one, Bob Costas is in the Red Sox locker room.
1: He he does a great job of telling this story in the Ken Burns baseball.
2: The nice thing about that, too, is if you listen to it now, you might. For a lot of people, and maybe this is my recency bias, but like. The Red Sox-Yankees thing and the whole Red Sox thing hadn't been done to death at that point. True. Uh, This was one of the first, like, I was only eight. Think about it. That thing came out in, what, 94?
1: Yeah, it was during the strike, so 94.
2: First real, complete retellings of this thing, uh, you know, only eight years after it happened. So he's in the locker room with Mrs. Yawkey. He's literally sitting there waiting to do the post-game interviews and he he talks, you know, I won't word for word, but he says like, I'm going to be the first person to ever interview somebody after a Red Sox championship, because the last time they won was in 1918. There obviously was no TV. There was no radio like that. Live radio, you know, the physical concept of radio existed, but not radio as a medium. So he's thinking, you know, what do you say? How do you sum that up? And here's what we have as everybody is, um, and there's another thing with McNamara later on, I guess what it says when asked later about his decision to leave Buckner in the game, McNamara initially said he felt he deserved to stay on the field. And I guess later on, he's revised those remarks to say he thought um, Stapleton was, you know, not quite ready for the moment or something like that. Cause I think he, as the first couple of years had gone on years later, McNamara changed his story and said the reason why had nothing to do with sentimentality. And instead that Stapleton was not a reliable defender. So that was later on what he said. Um,
1: but that's nonsense because he'd been putting Stapleton in yeah. as a defensive replacement for Buckner, all playoffs.
2: So the Mets come up first two batters make out. Uh, Backman flies to left. Hernandez flies to center. So
1: and Keith Hernandez goes into the clubhouse lights a cigarette doesn't watch the end of the game because he's so angry. and He doesn't want to see the Red Sox celebrate at Shea Stadium
2: umpire Harry Wendelstadt, the third base umpire that night asks Wade Boggs if he can have his hat which I mean you got to think if you're the if you're Wade Boggs it's like all of a sudden hey can I have your hat when it's <laughs> over it's like go away I'm the- <laughs> i'm right now so
1: <laughs> not right now exactly
2: like I don't, I don't when want, we're
1: done maybe I
2: don't, I don't want to hear this now um, so carter comes up says and this is very typical mets here even though they're about to have the greatest moment in their franchise's history there's you have to have a brief same old mets bro With Carter, now New York's last hope, the words, congratulations, Boston Red Sox, 1986 (laughs) world champions, briefly and accidentally flashed on the
1: score. That's a great picture. If you ever see that, that's a great picture.
2: (laughs) So Carter singles. Strawberry would be coming up, but now the pitcher's spot is coming up. Uh, Davey Johnson sends up Kevin Mitchell. Mitchell was not in the dugout. (laughs)
1: I think he had to get dressed. I think he had to like pull his uh, pull his pants on or he something.
2: Denied this, but the Wikipedia says that since he believed the game was over, he the rookie went back to the clubhouse and took his uniform uh, off. Someone had to be sent to the clubhouse to get him. Blah blah blah. Mitchell comes in, singles. Carter goes to second. Giraldi stays in the game. He gets two strikes on Knight. Knight gets a single. Carter scores. So now we have first and third. It's five to four. There's two outs. McNamara goes to the bullpen, brings in Bob Stanley. You know, certainly again, if you want to second guess McNamara, probably the batter before would have been the time to do this. So Stanley comes in. And again, if you're going to second guess McNamara yet again, you could say, why now, why not the batter before that? And up comes Mookie Wilson, two balls and two strikes. Stanley throws a breaking ball, bounces in front of Wilson. Wilson dives out of the way to avoid it. The ball goes to the backstop. You see very famously Wilson, who just dodged the the pitch, and he's on his knees waving uh, Kevin Mitchell to come home. Mitchell scores easily. So now we have a tie game. And
1: Mookie always has said that that took all the pressure off for him because now the worst he can do is send the games to extra innings. Oh yeah, I mean that's And the, this is this is just one of the most epic at-bats that I've ever seen in baseball. He I, I'm I'm wonder if he, let me look up here real quick while you're talking. He must foul off seven or eight pitches in this at-bat.
2: Yeah, it said the wild pitch was the sixth pitch of the at-bat with the count even at two balls and two strikes. So
1: Okay, so he, he it's only it's actually only um no, it, it ends up being a 10-pitch at-bat yeah. all all told.
2: There's a few cuz I think a lot of people think it's the next pitch.
1: No, I think he fouls off a couple more.
2: He fouls off a couple more with Knight at second base. So it's now a tie game. The winning run is at second base. And after, on the 10th pitch of the at-bat, Wilson grounds the ball to first base fairly weakly, but not a dribbler. Behind first base, Bill Buckner, who had been hitting the hip the pitch, uh, the inning, half inning before that, in his late 30s at this point, goes to pick it up. The ball rolls through his legs. Wilson touches first. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win. It's a
1: story that's been told, but Buckner, as the playoffs were starting, had given an interview on TV, and he'd say that the dreams are that you're going to go have a you're going to have a great series. The dreams are that you're going to have a great series and win. The nightmares are that you're going to let the winning run score on a ground ball through your legs. So he kind of had weirdly sort of prophesied that something like this might happen to him
2: and the very famous quote behind the bag it gets through buckner here comes night and the mets win and you know you'll be forever seeing that ball go through bill buckner's legs now i don't think we want to spend too much time on this because if you what more can be said look the immediate and 15 years immediate reaction to that of getting reducing it to Bill Buckner cost the Red Sox. The World Series is wholly incomplete. The game had already been tied. You talk to certain people who will argue that maybe Mookie beats that throw anyway. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe after, you know, Mookie with speed and Buckner with no speed, even if he feels it cleanly, Mookie may beat him to first base. Now, hard to imagine Ray Knight scoring from second on that. So it's probably met at the corners with two outs. Um, You know, and then you're going to the 11th inning, possibly who who knows is the point. And certainly there, you know, there's a whole nother game to play, which we're going to talk about. But you also don't want to go too far and say, like, none of that had any like none of that was Bill Buckner's fault. It's still a really bad play at a really inopportune time. You can feel a lot of sympathy for the guy and still say, yeah, that's a tough time to let the ball go through your legs. You know what I mean?
1: And if you want to hear more about Buckner, that was another uh, topic of discussion when we had Valentine a couple weeks ago, their friend, their close friendship that they always had. And Valentine talking about how he always felt bad for Bill Buckner, but yeah, it was the end of a number of things that went wrong for the Red Sox in that game, decisions by McNamara, wild pitches, you name it. And so They go into game seven and we're, you know, obviously as we do, we're, we're taking up a lot of time here, so we don't want to spend a, a world of time on this. If
2: you're going to spend a lot of time on a game, game six of the 1986 world, Series, (laughs) probably a good one to do.
1: I would agree. So I think one of the most interesting things about this game is that it rains the next night.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It was supposed to be a Sunday night and the starting pitcher for game seven was supposed to be Oil Can Boyd. But since there had been a rainout, McNamara is able to go to Bruce Hurst, who had been the starting pitcher in game five on the 23rd so he's able to go to hearst on three days rest the story
2: goes (laughs) let me read this description of it because this is a pretty good description of it after boyd received word that he was not starting the final game of the series he went down into the visitors clubhouse and remained there alone for some time McNamara dispatched pitching coach Bill Fisher to find Boyd and Fisher discovered that the oil can had consumed a great deal of alcohol and was in no condition to function much less play. Fisher moved Boyd into the manager's office where he locked the door and left him for the entire game.
1: Yeah. So who knows the Mets get into a hole again, the Red Sox. That's another thing that you don't hear about is that the Red Sox jump out to a three, nothing lead on back-to-back home runs by Evans and Gedman and then later an RBI single by Boggs, but it doesn't last. And the Mets, they actually don't tie the game up to the bottom of the sixth. So, you know, it was getting late. It's not like they tied it right back up, but they score three runs in the sixth. They score another three in the seventh to go up six to three, and then it's kind of all over. Well, but the shouting
2: in the top of the eighth, the Red Sox scored twice. It was six to five going into the bottom of the eighth inning.
1: Oh yeah. No, that's a good point. And then the Mets score a couple strawberry hits a home run. And then the last RBI of the Mets season actually comes from Jesse Orozco. <laughs> he hits a single to center field to, to give the Mets that, that insurance run. And then there's that famous um, clip that everybody's seen of him striking out Marty Barrett and, kind of throwing his glove up 50 feet in the air and falling to his knees and that's the 86 World Series. that's the 86 postseason, one of the most epic postseasons in baseball history and that is the last New York Mets championship uh, even to this day uh, 35, uh, 36 years later at this point.'ve they've, uh, they've come a little bit close, I guess a couple times, but the team that everybody thought was going to be a dynasty, is really ends up just being a one year wonder.
2: Yeah, they '88. They lose the NLCS to the Dodgers, who they'd owned all regular season. As the '80s progress, the a lot of the things that people like to talk about the with the '86 Mets caught up to them. The drugs, Gooden and and Strawberry both face suspensions. Gooden eventually, in what '92, is dealt to the Dodgers.
1: Uh, Strawberries dealt to the Dodgers. I Strawberry,
2: I misspoke. Sorry. Gooden eventually, both those guys, ironically, end up back with the Yankees. Not ironically, because Steinbrenner did it on purpose. End up with the Yankees and Strawberry, especially, is kind of a big part of their late '90s teams that win championships. Gooden's on the team in '96, but the Mets by you know by the early '90s, the Mets had bottomed out. The famous was the '93 team, the worst team money could buy. Bobby Bonilla and Eddie Murray and all those guys. Yep. The Red Sox regressed in 87 back to is fired at the end of 87. They, you know, they have a few good years in the early nineties, but nothing too special. Clemens is dealt in 95 at the end of the 95 season with to the blue Jays with the very famous, uh, was it Jim Duquette saying he was in the twilight of his career.
1: Well, yeah, I think he discovered steroids then, and that might be a big reason why he was not, but
2: Fair, fair enough. That's you're right. That's a quote that probably should be rehabilitated at this point. Before we leave it, is game six of the 1986 World Series the most famous baseball game of all time?
1: Yeah. I think yeah. Happens, right. Because of who the teams were and how it ended mm-hmm. and the time period. I mean, the 75 Red Sox Reds is, you know, maybe a, maybe has a chance. Well, here's the thing. I will say that it's one A and one B maybe with the 51 Dodgers Giants game.
2: Yeah, that's that's the one that sprung to mind to me. Coincidentally, with 75, it is interesting being at the um, when I was at the Reds Museum two months ago, and it's like they like mentioned that they're like, oh, yeah. And then the next night we won like, you know what I mean? It's like, hey, we won the World Series. Like, um,
1: and that's another reason why I say that this one's probably better because mm-hmm. it's It actually meant the team actually ended up winning the World Series.
2: The only other one I would say, and we probably need some hindsight on this, that game five years ago, that game seven with the Indians and the Cubs. I think the only mitigating factor with that is that it was in Cleveland. Probably true. At Wrigley. I mean, it, it it goes from, but anyway, yeah, that's, it's one of those where it's unfortunate because it's become almost trite to talk about. 86 and the 86 world series because of how often it gets talked about. But like, there's a reason it's, you know, whether you just the drama of the game itself, the characters involved, the literary elements to it, all of that stuff. It's, you know, people will remember that for a very long time.
1: The other piece of trivia that I had is that Ray Knight becomes the first of four MVPs of the World Series to leave the team immediately following that season. There's three others. Can you guess who they are? Two might be. Two should be relatively World maybe
2: MVPs to leave the team the immediate immediately
1: right after that. Yeah,
2: Pujols was one of them, right?
1: Was Pujols? No, I don't think Pujols was. Was Pujols
2: a World Series MVP? Oh no! I think he had that series where he hit the three home runs. That
1: was David. I think David Freeze was the MVP of that okay. World Series in '11.
2: Matsui's Matt one.
1: Matsui's one.
2: Okay, so then they're all post '86.
1: They're all post '86.
2: Sui's one in '80 in 09. Wetland in '96.
1: Wetland's another one. The other one you might not get. The other one's not a Yankee.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I would. I mean, I wouldn't think so. Um, I don't know. We're going long enough already. So
1: Jack Morris in '91 leaves uh, okay. the Twins. And goes to Toronto. Makes so. sense.
2: All
1: right. So I know we want to do NFL. I think feel like we should just talk real quick about the uh, 1986 college football season. Penn State is the national champion. They are coached obviously by Joe Paterno. They defeat an undefeated and they're undefeated, and they defeat an undefeated Miami Hurricanes team coached by future NFL Hall of Fame coach, Jimmy Johnson, 14 to 10. I don't know if there's anything. You, you would talk last week about how this was maybe, I hate to even bring this up, but this might have been Jerry Sandusky's best game as a defensive coordinator.
2: Yeah, so Penn State beats Miami in the Fiesta Bowl. It's an interesting thing, too, because this was the game that put the Fiesta Bowl on the map, actually. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you go back, both of these teams were independents. Obviously, Notre Dame was, Penn State was an independent in football at the time. You know, this is still the era where Oh no, if you win the Big Ten or you win the Pac 10, you're playing in the Rose Bowl. If you win the SEC, you're playing in the Sugar Bowl. The Big Eight is the Cotton Bowl or whatever. Like it wasn't a foregone conclusion that number one and two would play each other. They were both independents. So not only could they play each other, they could shop for a game. If one was independent and the other one was tied in, they would have played in the Orange Bowl or whatever. So they could basically shop for a game. The Fiesta Bowl gave them the money. That was the game that put the Fiesta Bowl on the map. There was a goal line stand by Penn State at the end of the game. This was the game where Miami got off the plane wearing uh, military fatigues. That's um,
1: right. That's right.
2: And uh, this was like the Vinny Testaverde won the Heisman. And what I was saying was they held that very high powered Miami offense to, I want to say, seven points They went like 13-7 or something like that. And I think for a long time, this was the game that was... Final score was 14-10. to 10. 14 to 10, okay. The crowning achievement of their defensive coordinator, Jerry Sandusky's um, I think for years, I remember Francesa when the scandal happened saying like he was a very famous where oh, if you give him two, three weeks to prepare for you in a bowl game, he'll come up with a game plan to neutralize you. And this was sort of the you know, the thesis of that argument. So just worth pointing out. Certainly not a figure who will ever really be talked about again in the context of his game plans, but I figured it's, you know, at least worth mentioning.
1: The one guy from this defense that kind of stands out to me, I have to be honest, I do not recognize most of these names. Shane Conlin was a starting linebacker who was later a Buffalo. linebacker on all of those Buffalo Bills teams. I think Testaverde was the quarterback of the Miami Hurricanes, right?
2: He won the Heisman.
1: He won the Heisman. Okay.
2: And then the only other college football thing I would mention, Army beat Navy 27 to 7.
1: There you go. Oh, and Michael Irvin was on was a sophomore wide receiver for those Miami Hurricanes teams, which Miami is obviously
2: would win, Miami would win the next year. Now because they won eighty they won with the three different coaches. They won with eighty two with uh what's his name? Um not Shem Beckler, that was Michigan, but whoever their eighty two coach was who then went on and coached in the USFL, and then eighty seven was Jimmy Johnson, and then nineteen ninety one was Dennis Erickson. Um, yes, that's right. That was the um,
1: but you're thinking of Howard uh, Schellenberger
2: Schellenberger. Yeah, he
1: was who actually just died this year. And I think I have him on the list for in memoriam. Okay,
2: so I guess we should move on to the NFL, right?
1: Yeah. And this is another uh, this is another happy story for New Yorkers. In fact, the rained out uh, game seven ended up being on a Monday night. Giants were playing the Red Sox uh, across the river uh, in I'm sorry. The Giants are playing the Redskins across the river in the Meadowlands, and there was there's it's this famous story about how fans brought portable TVs and radios to listen to the listen to and watch the game, watch the Mets game, and there'd be random times during the NFL during the Giant game when all of a sudden they'd be cheering whether that would like the Redskins would complete a pass and the fans would cheer, or somebody would call a timeout and the fans would cheer, and then eventually they realized that it was that they were watching the Met game.
2: And that it wasn't just that it was any old, the giant game, the giants went into that six and one, or excuse me, the giants went in five and two, the Redskins went in six and one. They were the two teams that would end up playing each other in the NFC championship game that year. They were two of probably considered the best teams in the NFL at the moment. Obviously the bears were in there too, from what they'd done last year, but that was like the biggest game of the giant season on paper and happened. You know, it wasn't like, Oh yeah, it was, it coincided with them playing the Cardinal. This
1: is the golden age of NFC football and of Hall of Fame coaches on NFC teams. Joe Gibbs has already won one with Washington. Bill Walsh has already won two with San Francisco. You got Ditka with the Bears. Dallas is still halfway decent. Dallas had actually just that year brought in Herschel Walker after the USFL folded and giant fans were not happy because Walker had been with the New York, New Jersey generals of the USFL. And so everybody was thinking he would end up with the giants once the USFL folded, but instead he ended up with Dallas and it was Dallas who beat the giants on opening night. I believe it was on a touchdown by Walker. Wasn't it?
2: Yeah. I think the very, I believe it was Walker and the that game was famous because LT had held out all of camp and reported like five days before that. And he was clearly gassed on that last drive when basically Walker blew right by him into the end zone to end the game.
1: Yeah. And that would be only one of only two games that the Giants lost all year. They had hired Parcells in 83. He'd had not I think what, what were they three and twelve that first year? Three twelve and one his in Parcells' first year.
2: Yeah, in '83. Yeah,
1: but then they made the playoffs in '84. They made the playoffs in '85. They're building this defense. They're bringing in you know, they draft Carl Banks. They draft Leonard Marshall. They're starting to bring in all of these guys who would be centerpieces of the '80s Giants defense. Belichick is the defensive coordinator and. They end up having just this dominant 14 and 2 season. They lose only one more game the entire rest of the season. They go 14 and 1 the rest of the way out. The other loss is to Seattle, I want to say.
2: Yeah, they lost on the road in Seattle in week seven.
1: And then after that, they just dominate. This is, I know they win another title four years later, but this is the dominant giant team, not just of the 80s, but of the whole, you know, post. Of the Super Bowl era, this is the best giant team, I would say, by far.
2: Lawrence Taylor's best year. He has 20 and a half sacks. Leonard Marshall, for good measure, has 12, so on pretty much any other team in the league that would have led the league. Banks has a really good year. He's got six and a half sacks. He's got 113 tackles. You know, you just, if you're a giant fan and you look at that front seven, you know, and I know I'm not the most representative example because I do a sports history podcast, but you know, the front seven of Marshall and Berth and Martin and then the linebacking core of Carson, Reasons, Taylor, Banks. Even Pepper Johnson was what a rookie that year.
1: Either that year or the year before, yeah.
2: Or Yeah, Um, you know, that, that front seven is the stuff of legends, you know, Giants fans of a certain age. You know, the offense struggles through a lot of the year. Very famously, they have the game against minnesota where because it's also the division was so loaded the redskins were 12 and 4 the giants didn't you know get past the redskins get clear of the redskins for a long time beat them in that monday night game we talked about and then they played them in week 14 and beat them to get to 12 and 2 and clinch the division but you know they had a stretch where they were winning games after that seattle game they played three games in a row against the three teams, they are three real competitors in the division, Washington, Dallas, and Philly. They win all those games, but they win 27, 20, 17, 14, 17, 14. So the offense is struggling. They go up to Minnesota. That's the famous fourth and 23 game where Sims hits, uh, Bobby Johnson, Bobby
1: Johnson. Yep.
2: The sideline giants end up kicking it. Raul Allegri kicks a game winning field goal for the giants to win. Then they have two games, they follow that up with a couple more important games against Denver, which turned out to be a Super Bowl rematch. The week after is the stuff of legends on a Monday night. They go to San Francisco. That's the game they're losing. Uh where they was in seventeen nothing at halftime. I,
1: I believe that's correct. Yeah.
2: It's the game where early in the second half, Bill Sims throws it over the middle to Mark Bavaro, and Mark Bavaro drags like he breaks like four tackles and drags Ronnie Lott for twenty yards.
1: Um, yeah, you still see that when they talk about you know memorable Monday Night moments and that type of thing.
2: Yep. So they end up fourteen and two in the NFC playoffs. You're talking about the five team era, so three division winners, two wild cards. So the Giants are fourteen and two. The Bears are also fourteen and two. Uh, the Giants were the one seed. They didn't play each other that year. But the Giants are the one seed because they have, uh, whatever, it's probably conference losses. The Niners win their division at 10-5-1. Wild card round, the Redskins beat the Bears. Or excuse me, the Redskins beat the Rams. So then the next week, the Redskins play the Bears and upset them. You know, the Bears are the defending Super Bowl champions. They were 15-1 and one the year before, won the Super Bowl.
1: And had smacked the Giants pretty good in the playoffs. What, 21-0, right?
2: 21-0. Uh, they smacked the, everybody they played that year in the playoffs so the redskins go up there and upset them in the second round of the playoffs the divisional round in 86 the giants host the 49ers who were in a bit of an they're in a bit of their like interregnum period between 84 and 88 where the giants knocked them out 2 years in a row in 85 and 86 and then in 87 they get upset by minnesota uh in the playoffs so they're they're kind of between Yeah. And Montana's
1: got some injuries. There's his back. In fact, one of the reasons they trade for Steve Young around this time is because they think that Montana's career might end up being over pretty soon. And you're right. It was the early days of Jerry Rice. They hadn't really become the team that they would be in the late 80s, which is kind of like the 49er team that you and I would remember more.
2: And in the playoff game against the Giants, Jerry Rice catches a ball early in the game. And is running free to what would have been an easy touchdown and for some reason decides to switch hands of the ball and just fumbles it. And the Giants recover. The Giants end up going on to win 49 to three. Jim Burt knocks Joe Montana out of the game with a hit that is certainly dirty by today's standard and was pretty borderline by those standards. Either he kind of takes both of his hands and just like shoves them into his head.
1: Yeah, Burt Bert didn't mind those dirty hits.
2: So the Giants win 49 to three. They beat the crap out of the 49ers. I believe I don't remember who the quote was, but they asked after the game like, oh, do you think it would have been any different if Rice hadn't fumbled that ball? And the response was, yeah, it would have been 49 to 10. So they beat the 49ers NFC championship game rematch against the uh, Redskins Giants beaten them twice that year already in the regular season. It is very famously a very windy day. It's a 4.30 start in New York in January, so it's dark pretty much by the time the game starts. And uh, my friend uh, is really, a, you know, he's my father's age, but he's I consider him my friend, guy named Andy, who I used to do a radio show with. For years, any time this game ups, game comes up, he says, Parcells took the wind, And he did. The Giants won the coin toss, and Parcells, chose a goal which meant the redskins got the ball to start both halves but he had that much faith in his special teams that his defense that he figured if the giants could have the wind in the first quarter that they'd be okay and it worked out i think they were up 10 nothing at the end of the first quarter and don't they always say
1: that the punter sean landetto was sort of like the mvp of that game by he punted it so much better than the washington punter
2: Yeah, the Washington part of the ball was just floating in the air, barely going anywhere. So the Giants end up winning 17-0. I think they got the 17th, probably, I don't know if it was early in the third quarter or whatever. But once they went up 17, it was clear the the game was over. The Redskins weren't scoring 17 points in that game. And you get kind of an atmosphere of, you know, the Giants had been really bad from 1963 to 1978. They'd been 63 to 81. They'd been bad to terrible mostly terrible you know a few decent years leading up to this where you know okay they're getting better but who knows what the end product's gonna be and i can't say this would be my number one if i could go back but this might be my number one giant home game i could ever go to i think there
1: was a lot of pent-up excitement
2: and you start to see the uh Newspapers being thrown out onto the field and uh,
1: swirling around in circles,
2: toilet paper and things like that. And uh, the announcer, the old Giants announcer from back then with the deep voices saying, he's like, crumpled up newspapers, rolls of toilet paper. And the Giants fa- Giants fans are seeing something they thought they would never see as the Giants will be checking their reservations for Pasadena. So the Giants beat the Redskins 17-0 and advanced to their first Super Bowl in uh, franchise history, because the end of their last good run happened just a couple of years before the Super Bowl era began.
1: His name was Jim Gordon, that famous announcer. He was the Giants uh, announcer from '77 all the way until 1993, and then he was replaced by Bob Papa. A very, uh, very brief uh, digression here about Giants announcers. 1960, their play-by-play radio guy was Mel Allen, and then. For the next 12 years, it was Marty Glickman, who's a Hall of Fame broadcaster, uh, well known as a, a basketball broadcaster for the Knicks also, and also somebody who was on the 1936 Olympic track team with Jesse Owens. And then from 73 to 76, they have Marv Albert and then Jim Gordon. So some really famous names that are Giants broadcasters through the years. The other thing I wanted to mention, and for you and me, I think this is almost like not even worth mentioning because... We know it, but there's another sort of really interesting element to this giant team that has a lasting legacy in the world of
2: sports. Sure. So it's it's a little disputed. There's no doubt they did it a couple of times the year before that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Bears have claimed that they did it a couple of times, too. But the 86 Giants are famous for being the first team to popularize the Gatorade shower for the head coach. In fact, if you go back and watch a DVD of the Super Bowl, so much of the coverage is them talking about it because it's a novel thing. Yes. Madden showing pictures of it and circling the thing. But basically, after they lose game one to the Cowboys, starting the next week, it started with Jim Burt. Harry Carson very famously became the sort of ringleader of it.
1: And he was the because he was the veteran and the captain.
2: Mm -hmm. They would towards the end of a game, they would take the Gatorade bucket and dump it. After every win, they would dump it over Bill Parcells' head. So as you started to get to the there would be times where Carson would be dressed like the trainer. So he would have the trainer's cap on and his coat. And then there'd be times where he'd have the yellow Meadowlands security jacket on. The NFC championship game is a very famous one that. Because it was cold, it was windy, and it was pretty clear Parcells didn't actually want to get dunked that day, but they were not going to let him slide. So as Carson is going up to him, Parcells turns around and is kind of like dancing around him and Sean Landetta comes up and holds him so that Carson can sort of throw the Gatorade at him. But they, um, if didn't invent it, pioneered it and popularized it and gave birth to a legitimate, you know, you see that. To this day, when teams win championships in football or divisions or any of that, at every they, level, pretty much. I mean, they
1: even do it in basketball now. They, they dump it on the coaches. You know, when he's wearing a suit, they dump it on the court in the NBA finals. So it's, it's ubiquitous in sports now. And that's where it started.
2: Yep. Yeah. So um, you're right. I, I was totally not even thinking about that, saying that, because it's just so ingrained in me, he's like knowing that. But thank you for bringing that up. We should talk about the AFC a little bit and then the Super Bowl.
1: Well, the AFC championship is one of the most famous games in NFL playoff history.
2: Just to set the scene with a couple of teams. And I actually didn't when you were talking about the Gatorade thing, I thought you were going somewhere else with that, which is that for a lot of this 1986 season. And I will admit to not really knowing this until I was maybe 18 or 19. There was a real buzz in New York that the Giants and Jets were going to play in the Super Bowl. Jets were 10 and one. They lost in week two to new England. And then they beat Buffalo in week one. They lost. Wow. Their first six games this year were divisional games. The 86 jets played the bills, the Patriots, the dolphins, the Colts, the bills and the Patriots. So they were 10 and one at one point, And then lost their last five games. Most of them by blowouts. They lost to the dolphins by 42. The Rams by 14, the 49ers by 14, the Steelers by 21, and then Cincinnati by 31. It was enough for them to get into the playoffs, but they lost in the wild card game to the Kansas City Chiefs, who also were 10 and six.
1: There's a Super Bowl or sorry, there's a Sports Illustrated cover from September of 86. It's um. I had seen it before, and I just pulled it up again. Now it's kind of you know it shows that the Jets and the Giants were both big deals in New York in the fall of '86, and it's a it's a cover of Mark Taylor and of Lawrence Taylor and Mark Gastonau.
2: But it was Ravishing Rick Rude.
1: (laughs) Yeah, if you look at the picture, he does kind of look like Ravishing Rick Rude. Lawrence Taylor is seated. He's got his helmet in his hands, filled with red apples and Mark Gastonow is eating one of the apples, trying to steal more apples, and the headline is, in the Big Apple, the Jets are always second banana. So, yeah, that, I mean, that would have been cool, too. That would have been really neat if the two teams had played in the Super Bowl. Obviously, it didn't really come close to happening, but mm-hmm. you know, you're also in kind of a little bit of a weird place in the AFC because the year before, you know that, that mediocre Patriots team had snuck through But before that, in the early '80s, it had been either Miami or the—I think it was either Miami or the Raiders for four straight years. If I'm doing my math correctly, no, just
2: '82, '83, '84.
1: Okay, and it was the Raiders in '80, so four out of five years. So, So you're kind of at a turning point in the AFC, and the two teams that play in the championship AFC championship are the two that would be probably the best teams in the AFC at least for the next few years.
2: The AFC playoffs that go pretty much according chalk. Wait, hang. On. Oh, I'm I'm wrong. The, the the Jets won that wild card game against Kansas City. I'm sorry. So the, so they were even closer. So the Jets won even after losing their last five games of the regular season. Uh, the Jets won on uh, Saturday, December twenty eighth. They won the wild card game at Giants Stadium, uh, which would have been the Jets' first playoff game at Giants Stadium. They beat Kansas City thirty five to fifteen. So then you had. The next week, the Jets with a four seed. They go to Cleveland. Denver plays New England, the defending AFC champions. Denver beats them. That Jets-Cleveland game was actually a really, really close game that I think a lot of people kind of forget about. It was 23-20 to in, in double overtime, actually. So the Jets almost took it to the AFC championship game, even though they, lo- they lose the last five games of the regular season. Seems like they're running on fumes but they do manage to get to the uh, they actually have a 20 to 10 lead and Cleveland scores to make it 2017. They get the field goal to make it 2020. I'm trying to see how late they scored to tie it. Let's see. When did Mosley hit that? Mosley hits a game tying field goal with 11 seconds left. So the jets had the lead at the very, very end of the game goes into overtime ends up at double overtime. The game is now called the marathon by the lake, which doesn't really rhyme. But um, Brown's (laughs) escape in that game, like I said, on the other side of the bracket, you had the uh, Broncos beating the Patriots in another close game. Actually, New England was up 17 to 13 and Denver scored to make it 20 to 17 and then got a safety at the very end of the game. So both of those teams that played in this very famous AFC championship game were really in danger the week before. We could have had a Jets Patriots AFC championship game. And this is sort
1: of Elway's. He'd had good seasons before, but this is his first really good. This is his first Pro Bowl year. I I know that Taylor was the MVP, but I think that Elway might have won. He might have won some other award here that year. He, now, well, maybe not. I, I he was. He, I thought he was like the offensive player of the year. Eighty six. Yeah, he was the offensive player of the year for Denver in eighty six. It's his first Pro Bowl he is not a Randall Cunningham type running quarterback, but as quarterbacks go in the night, the mid 1980s, 257 rushing yards for a quarterback on 52 attempts. The following year, he actually has four rushing TDs this year. He only has one, but that does add an element. He is kind of the whole offense on that team.
2: Yeah, so 1986 AFC Championship Game. It's the early game before the Redskins and the Giants. And on the DVD I have of the Giant game, and this would never happen these days, but that ge- the Giant-Redskin game starts, and you hear Pat Summerall go, "An update from Cleveland. They're headed to overtime." And then, like a few minutes later, it's like. The D- Denver has won the game, so the winner of this game will meet Denver in a week, next week, and or might have been two weeks. I don't remember. We'll meet Denver in Pasadena in Super Bowl Twenty One.
1: You think that would never happen today, just because they would now want people to change the channel?
2: They would not start the second game until the first game was over. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. I, I, that never even occurred to me. I thought they spaced him out enough that they felt like they wouldn't have to, but if they needed to, they would start. I
2: would be very, very sure they would figure out a way to not start it.
1: Yeah. He'd probably have somebody trip the electrical or something.
2: But uh, so let's talk about the 86 AFC Championship game from Cleveland Municipal Stadium. It's the number one seed Browns against the number two seed Broncos. It's 10 to 10 at halftime. Denver takes a 13 to 10 lead into the fourth quarter. And then. Uh, Cleveland scores late in the game to go up 20 to 13. Yep. And Denver takes over at their own two yard line because there was a, did they muff the kickoff? Is that what happened?
1: Let me take a look here. Um,
2: I jumped to a 20 to 13 lead. Denver muffed the ensuing kickoff. So Elway takes over with five minutes and 32 seconds left.
1: Yeah, they, they kick it to a guy by the name of Ken bell. It's a low line drive kick and it hits the ground, gets past the returner. And instead of letting it roll into the end zone, he panics and grabs the ball and falls to the ground because he doesn't want to fumble. So that's how they end up at their own two yard line.
2: So I won't go play by play right away, but they're, you know, they pick up a couple of first downs where the drive really starts to pick up speed is, They have first and 10 at their own 26. Elway hits Steve Sewell for a 22 yard pass. The next play from the 48 yard line, uh, Elway hits Steve Watson for 12 yards. That brings it to the two minute warning. The Browns are in, or the Broncos are in Browns territory. After an incompletion, there's a sack. So you get third and 18 with 147 left. And Elway hits Mark Jackson for 20 yards and a first down to the Cleveland 28. One play later, after an incompletion, Elway hits Steve Sewell with a 14-yard pass. Then on a first and 10, there's an incompletion. Second and 10, Elway scrambles to bring up third and one with 39 seconds left at the Cleveland five-yard line. Elway hits Mark Jackson for the touchdown. Extra point ties the game goes into overtime and in overtime Rich Carlos hits a 33 yard field goal I believe on the first drive of the game or the first drive of overtime I could be wrong about that
1: I think the Browns go three and out at some point okay in overtime.
2: So the Browns must probably start it go three and out Denver gets the field goal and this for years is the legend of John Elway is this 98 yard drive to on the road in cleveland to force overtime that ultimately brings the broncos to the super bowl the first super bowl of elway's career
1: yeah uh, one writer says elway didn't just pull victory from the brown's mouth he ripped the thing from halfway down their throat the following year it's just as bad ernest biner fumbles for the browns on the goal line broncos win again browns never make a super bowl still haven't to this day Leave the leave the area, leave Cleveland and have to have a new expansion team brought in. And Elway starts to become legend, even though, as we'll wrap up here with it in a second, in 86, it's the first of three times that they get smacked pretty good in the Super Bowl.
2: And one thing I was they played in the AFC Championship game two years later, too, in 89. They played the Browns played them again. It wasn't as close. Denver won by sixteen. Mm-hmm. They played they, all three years in the eighties that Denver went to the Super Bowl. They played Cleveland in the AFC Championship game.
1: It's one of those forgotten rivalries. I feel like.
2: Yep. So um, that's that's the stage for the Super Bowl, and again, we're in only I guess year what three of the AFC always loses, but.
1: Yeah, because the Raiders had beaten Miami in 83. or I'm sorry, they beaten Washington in 83.
2: The Giants are fairly heavy favorites. I don't know what the line was. You know, obviously people Elway against this really dominant Giants defense. You know, Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks and Harry Carson and that, you know, insane linebacking core. And certainly the media is salivating over the chance to talk to... You know, Lawrence Taylor out in California, and then obviously the Giants are pretty famously very loose out there during that time frame. I think Phil Sims tells the story about they were practicing, and Parcells is kind of going like, and, you know, Parcells has the well deserved and also intentionally cultivated reputation of being a, a hard ass and really, you know, driving guys, but. I guess during the Friday before the Super Bowl, he was kind of going like, "All right, all right, guys, save some for the game, save some for the game." Mm-hmm. They were just they were sharp, they were ready. Elway, obviously coming in a, in a star-making performance, and this is another one to talk about. We want to talk about another first. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Sort of related to tangentially related to the game, but who knew that the star of the game in one of the most legendary performances of all time was on the other side of the ball for the Giants. And that was Phil Sims, who went 22 of 25 for 268 yards and three touchdowns in the game.
1: Two of the three incompletions were drops.
2: Yep. It was close early in the game. You had some interesting moments where the Giants had a goal line stand to stop the Broncos. And then Rich Carlos missed a field goal, missed, I believe, after having made the longest super kick in Super Bowl history up to that point. Field goal then misses the shortest field goal in Super Bowl history. Rich, Rich
1: Carlos, by the way, one of the few barefoot kickers in the recent years of the NFL.
2: You know, when I was a kid, because I had seen that game and I'd seen like one, like I thought that was a more popular thing than it was. At no point was it ever something a lot of people did.
1: No, not at all.
2: Yeah. So all that said, the Broncos are winning at halftime. The Broncos are winning 10 to nine because it was 10 to seven And with just a couple of minutes left in the half, Elway gets sacked in the end zone for a safety to cut the score to 10 to 9. So an interesting trivia is that the Giants have been losing in all the Giants have been losing at halftime in all five Super Bowls they've played.
1: That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a really good point.
2: 10 to 9 in two of them. And in four of them, they mounted an effort in the second half. (laughs) that got them a victory. Yeah. They were down at halftime and stayed that way. Um, Yeah. So it's 10 to 9 at halftime and then in the second half it's a it very quickly turns into a rout. The Giants score on the opening drive of the half to take a uh, 16 to 9 lead. They add another field goal and then by the time the third quarter is out Joe Morris has scored so the Giants take a 26 to 10 lead. They scored what 17 points in the third quarter. The Broncos did nothing and then the first drive of the fourth quarter for the Giants you had the Ball that bounces off of Mark Bavaro's head. Phil McConkey catches for a touchdown. Giants Phil
1: McConkey, who had been a Giant and then got cut early in the year, went to Green Bay and then came back. Interesting story about Phil McConkey in Green Bay. He actually.
2: Phil McConkey had also been stopped on the one yard line earlier in the game.
1: Yeah, on a flea flicker. Yep. Phil McConkey goes to Green Bay and he's there for about six weeks. And then the Giants bring him back and he comes back and he says to Parcells, You got to check out this assistant coach that they have with the Packers. You really ought to consider. Do you know this story? You really ought to consider bringing this guy in sometime. And Parcells says, well, if I ever get the chance, maybe I will. And Parcells eventually manages to bring this guy in in the late 80s. And his name, of course, is Tom Coughlin. So another interesting harbinger of things to come in the 1986 season.
2: So the game is basically over after the Allegre or after the uh, McConkey touchdown. Um, it ends up 39 to 20. Sims also tells a very funny story of one of the last drives where he's having, you know, the greatest game of his life in the biggest game of his life. Him and Parcells are about to be champions. And on the last drive, Sims must've taken a sack on a third down or something. And he's coming over to the sideline, expecting Parcells to like give him a hug and, and all that. And Parcells is like, now look, Sims, You can't take a sack in that situation. And I believe his response was, who gives an S? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the Giants get the win, 39-20. to
1: Parcells and Sims had some legendary sideline
2: battles. Sims is the MVP. Another first. He is the first one. And Elway would have been the other way to do the, I'm going to Disneyland after the game as the MVP. If you watch the trophy presentation, this was during the era of the Giants' ownership split, where the one side of the family really didn't talk to the other side of the family. So there's two basically different segments of the trophy presentation. And they make very clear, I think it was whoever it was, Roselle or whoever says like, and you know, even though Wellington and Tim do not get along, they still run this franchise in a first class manner. Like it's so well known that it has to be addressed even during the trophy presentation.
1: And so that was Wellington. The father who founded the team was Tim, right?
2: Yeah. So Tim Mara, that was the owner of the team, he's the one who founded the team in 25 I've never heard the exact year, but pretty quickly he had ceded a lot of control of the team, certainly by the post-war years. And I think well before that, even to his two sons, to Jack Mara and Wellington Mara. And Wellington Mara was more the um, player personnel guy at the time, Mm -hmm. what would be mostly considered like a GM now. And Jack Mara was the business guy in a lot of those ways. Jack Mara died very young.
1: I want to say in the mid-sixties. Yeah, I was gonna say he died like the early to mid-sixties.
2: Jack Mara died. The old man was was dead by then. Tim Mara Sr., the you know, the founder of the team had left a 50-50 share to both of his kids. And when Jack Mara died, it went to his children. The sort of principal of that group was a was another Tim Mara. So the original Tim Mara's grandson and Wellington Mara's nephew. And for whatever Irish Catholic reasons, they over the years hated each other. Um, there was a wall in the owner's box between the two sides. They really didn't speak very much at all unless they were absolutely forced to. Pretty good illustration of one of the reasons the team stunk for so long. Yeah,
1: it was just dysfunctional.
2: Yeah. So that's one of the reasons that they could never agree on anything. And that's why Pete Rozelle had to basically insist that they bring George Young in and run the team in 78, 79. Ultimately, right after the next Super Bowl in 1990, the Tim Mara side of the family sold their 50% interest to the Tishes. Well, they sold it to Steve Tish, whose kids now. Mm -hmm. Robert Tish. Steve's the one now. So that's what happened then. But at the time, it was still a whole, you know, two warring clans within one family. And it was so pronounced that you couldn't ignore it. You had to say something about it in the trophy presentation. So. That was the 86 Giants, 14 and two. Really, probably the best Giants team in NFL or in franchise history. Hard to argue otherwise. Parcells immediately begins flirting with the Falcons in the offseason. <laughs> um, 87, they get there's, the strike really derails any chances they had. 88, 89, they build back up and then win again in 90. The Broncos are back two more times in 87, losing to the Redskins in a rout. And then in '89, losing to the 49ers in a rout, before Elway finally gets his in the '90s.
1: Yeah, and it's crazy with the with Denver. If you think about it, they were they they kind of were Buffalo before Buffalo. They were in the first one, they were leading at halftime, and then the second one, they they played Washington tight for a little bit, and then the Redskins scored five touchdowns in <laughs> the second quarter of Super Bowl 22 with Doug Williams, which was just crazy. We
2: were and this year where somebody scored five touchdowns in the second quarter, so it's not as crazy as you think.
1: Yeah, but that wasn't a Super Bowl. That was the mediocre Giants against the less mediocre Rams, although they've been a little mediocre themselves recently, but that's another story. By the time this airs, God knows what's going to happen with the Rams. But anyway, and then 89, that was like 55-10 against the 49ers. They were never in that game, even for a minute. And then they kind of go into the wilderness, and you just kind of figure that Elway's never going to Get there, and then eventually with Shanahan and the Terrell Davis, I think had a big piece in this. All of a sudden, it's 1997, and they're winning a Super Bowl against the Green Bay Packers. So, yeah, a long, strange trip for Elway, which kind of really begins his legacy, sort of starts to begin in this '86 season. So, all right, well, last episode, this episode, it's funny. You really do have in the three major sports, you have three really historically defining teams. I would argue there's probably uh, between the three, there's probably almost a hundred books that have been written about those three teams in throughout the lesson in the last 35 years.
2: Yeah. And then if you go back to our first episode, you also had Tyson. That was the hand of God in soccer, which is one of the most famous soccer plays of all time. Did we talk about that last time? I think we mentioned it. Yeah.
1: We definitely talked a lot about Maradona when we did the in memoriam last year. So he had, he, uh, he's gotten his due.
2: The Lenny bias thing. Um Yeah. I, again, I mentioned it sort of Jack Nicholas at the Masters.
1: Yep, um, that was another thing.
2: And I mentioned it, again, sort of it's
1: not Duke's first and uh, NCA championship game in men's basketball.
2: And it's not the focus of this podcast, but 1986 is, you know, again, I mentioned it, one of the most biggest years in the history of professional wrestling. It is a very pivotal year for sports. Between these two episodes, they've lasted almost as long as 1986 did. So that's a good thing, too.
1: <laughs> that's how we roll here on Hello Old Sports. Yes. All right. Well, next up, uh, starting with the next episode will be our In Memoriam episodes. So if you have anybody who has passed away in the year 2021 in the world of sports that you think we should cover, that you'd like to join us as a guest to cover for a few minutes, please do drop us a line. Hello, old sports at Gmail dot com. But until next time, I think we have uh, can put a bow on 1986. I'm Dan Newman.
2: I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports.
0: Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month.